God of all grace and mercy, we are just um, thankful that you've given us another day. Thank you for gathering us for for worship and celebration and being reminded of the greater story of the gospel. And uh, would you be with us in our time now as we hear from your word and may it continue to nurture our souls in the places we find ourselves this day and this week and this month and this year. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we're doing some snapshots, you could say, from the book of Exodus, trying to uh, just may- maybe find some, some manna from heaven, so to speak, uh, from God's Word here in Exodus. And it's such an intriguing story. We'll be mostly looking at uh, cha- between chapters 12 and 15 of Exodus. Um, this will this follows up on Stephen talked about the plagues last week, and where um, this will kind of take the tenth plague and move forward. But you know the book of Exodus, as I as I look at it and read through it, um, it very much is like giving a history of of a nation's identity. It's you know if you even thought about um, our our country's history, if you were to tell the story. You, there would be something about the origins of how people gathered and decided, here's the kind of government that we would like to have. There's a background of the various leaders and how they came to play important roles in the Revolutionary War. Maybe we'd highlight key battles that took place and how those were pivotal for the independence of our nation. And the gathering of Congress in Philadelphia to constitute this new nation with a constitution. Um, so, so in, in a lot of ways, I think Exodus moves in that sort of way, showing us the origins of God's people, how they ended up in Egypt, of how they were there. They were under oppression, under Pharaoh. Um, and, and then we see God calling a leader. We see the history of Moses and his leadership in the first early chapters of Exodus. And and then, of course, later on we'll get to the law, the constitution, how God will rule among his people, and um, how he will um, care for them. But, but we'll be looking right now this morning at this section of what you could say is kind of the, the pivotal battles. Um, Stephen started on last week talking about these, these plagues, and it's almost like a showdown between the gods of Egypt... Um, and the God, Yahweh, of the Hebrew people. And so, so we'll be looking at the Passover, the passing of the Red sea, through the Red Sea. And I want to start in Exodus 15 for a second, because Exodus 15 is they have made it through the Red Sea, and they're on the other side, and they are celebrating. And I think this is kind of the theme in some ways of this portion of Exodus and it you you find that you find in Exodus 15, Miriam and the women take up tambourines and they start dancing. Um, in verse 21, Miriam sang to them, "Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea." Um, that they cannot believe. The, the events that have just happened, how powerfully their God has saved them and delivered them, how he has um, 
drowned the their enemies in the waters of the sea and so so it's really it culminates in this celebration and rejoicing over what God has done on their behalf of how faithful he has been to them um, but they go through quite a journey um, but that wild exuberance of God's victory over the enemies of Israel um, it really that that plays out throughout scripture I mean if you take this all the way to the New Testament we have what we do every Sunday when we gather we are celebrating something even in Lent <laughs> we are celebrating we are celebrating that death doesn't have the final say that the consequences of sin and rebellion against God doesn't have the last say because Christ's death and victorious resurrection has defeated death our last our final enemy and this well, this is the from the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, God gave a provision. He announced that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. There was always good news, even from the beginning in the Bible. And so, and we find at the end of Revelation, all of God's people gathered, singing before the throne, um, glory and honor to the Lamb. Um, they're, they're, it is about celebration. It's about remembering that our God is triumphant. Um, no matter what our circumstances look like, no matter where we feel like we are in the stage of the story, God is the ultimate deliverer. And so, so that's where Israel finds themselves celebrating on the far side of the Red Sea. However, we will start looking here in Exodus 12... How did, how did they get there? How did they get to that place of celebrating God's goodness and His power and might and saving? And so there were ten plagues that God brought through Moses against Pharaoh in order to prompt him to let his people go. And each time Pharaoh kept saying, no, I'm not going to let him go. And another plague would come and Pharaoh would say, okay, maybe you can go. And then he would go back on his word and say, no, no. His heart would be hardened each time. Well, this was the final one, and it's what we know as the Passover. So I'll start reading in verse twelve, or chapter twelve, verse one. We'll read the first few verses here. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, "This month shall be for you the beginning of months. You shall it shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month." Every man shall take a lamb, according to the father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and you shall make count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So we have this announcement from God that I'm instituting something for you. And it starts with a meal. Isn't that interesting? It's a meal that God is saying, this is going to be the beginnings of how I'm going to deliver you from oppression and bondage. Take a lamb, find one, that is without blemish. Um, it's it's wholly sound. It's a completely sound animal. It's in good condition. Its physical purity 
reflects what God is going to do in a spiritual manner. And so we do have in, the, in our Lord's Supper a reflection of sorts of this Passover meal, of the blameless, without spot lamb who has been killed and that we feed on. And this is, that's what John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Um, that's, that's, that is a reference to what Israelites knew as the Passover lamb. This would be the lamb that, would, that they would kill. And, and in fact, the reference at the end of verse 6 of killing the lamb at twilight, that would actually be the time that a purification sacrifice would be offered by a priest at twilight. And so there's certainly a foreshadowing here of not only the entire sacrificial system that would happen under Mosaic law, but ultimately what Christ fulfills as the as great one greater than Moses, who offers his sacrifice not continually, but once at Calvary on our behalf. Um, all right, going on, verse seven. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. Um, that's just the door, you know, the doorposts around the side and then on the on the top of the door. Um, they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Um, I find that interesting. Uh, so, so basically, cook this and prepare this with fire. Um, that would be how a sacrifice would be prepared um, with, a, with an animal. And, and to eat it with bitter herbs. I don't... You know, I don't know what kind of herbs those are, but I don't know how tasty this meal was. But I think it is interesting that this, this bitterness, it seems to me as though because this is going to be a meal, that the Israelites would continually every year have as, as, as a community, that there was a memorial aspect to this, a remembrance. And I know for me, I mean, eating food is always connected to experiences for us, isn't it? You know, um, it reminds us of perhaps a good time, perhaps even a, a sad time, a difficult time, depending on what the, what the food is and how that played into your own experience. Um, but I think this, this eating with bitter herbs it almost provides a very tangible and embodied way of recollecting for the Israelites the pain of being in slavery, of being in oppression, of crying out to God, Lord, help us. This is bitter. This experience is bitter. Um, we long for more. And it shows the sheer graciousness, I think, of God's redemption. And so even in the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating God's redemption, but in doing so, we are, we're, as we do each week, we're, we're recognizing our sin. We're lamenting over it. We say we, you know, we bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. We recognize that this meal is needed not because of something bad that happened out there, but because of our own hearts, our own wayward patterns, the, the cold love that we have for the God who loves us. Um, so there is something even in a beautiful memorial meal that has that bitter taste to it. And I, think, I, think, I wonder if the bitter herbs there is that 
reference to remember you had bitter times and you cried out to the Lord and He saved you. Um, I found that a rabbi once wrote about the cedar meal, the Passover meal, that we taste in the cedar meal the trauma of slavery and all its bitterness as well as the sweetness of liberation. And we realize how fortunate and also how enslaved we are, whether by habits and patterns, relationships that no longer suit us, or memories of the past. Just a recognition that perhaps even in the eating of this meal there is an experience that we are memorializing. So later on, God repeat, he tells his people to continue to have this meal. Um, he says in chapter 13, verse 3, when Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Remember this, he says. Then down in verse 8 of chapter 13, You shall tell your sons on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Telling your children what Yahweh, the Lord, has done for you. The law, when it's given at Sinai, you know how it begins. It begins, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. There's a word of grace, even in the giving of the law. There's a reminder of who God is and what He has done for His people. This meal is to be eaten to be a reminder every year of how the Lord had saved His people that they were in bondage and He delivered them, that it didn't come from their own efforts, their own cleverness, but it came from His own hand. And so, so we have the Passover. Um, flipping back to chapter 12, um, it says in verse 12, the Lord says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. (laughs) That's very interesting. Uh, There's kind of been this showdown with Pharaoh with these plagues that have been happening. He said, I'm going to execute judgment on these so-called gods of Egypt. These these things that the Egyptians seem so powerful. They seem like they're in such control. They have all the resources. They have Israel under their thumb. And the Lord is saying, I'm going to fight for you and I'm going to show them what it means to fear me. And so the blood will be a sign on you, on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass you over. Hence, Passover. The judgment will pass over you. And no plague will befall or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Something is coming, you know, and God is telling his people, I'm going to save you, but this is going to be bad for Egypt. The Egyptians are going to rue the day they held you in captivity. You know, I mean, this, is, this is strong biblical language that God is using here. Um, that this is, um, God's going to deal the de- death blow, in a sense, to this, uh, to this powerful nation um, in delivering his people. Um, at towards, uh, let's see, here's when the plague actually comes. Here's what's recorded in Exodus 12, verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive in the, who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of the livestock. 
I mean, this is, this is devastating. I mean, from, from the greatest to the least, the firstborn is struck down. And so uh, this, is, this is just awful. You know, this is one of those... Um, we tend to tell a lot of these Old Testament stories like to children, like Noah and the ark, and look, it's fun when all the animals go on the ark. And isn't it just sweet and cute when we make little little picture books for them. And, you know, these are some of the first stories we tell our kids from the Bible. But they are, if you really imagine being there, I mean, it is horrific. God flooded the world and killed every baby. <laughs> little children. It wasn't just the, you know, the wicked adults who they should have known better. Um, what we would consider in our society innocents were killed. And, and the firstborn of everyone in Egypt is killed. But it's Israel saved only because of putting the blood from that spotless lamb over their house, marking it so that this angel of this, the, the destroyer would pass over, would say, this, is, this house is covered by the Lord. Why do you think that he put the... Well, it seems to me that God is so powerful, he, wouldn't, he doesn't need this. Yeah, yeah. It's not so much for God's knowledge, maybe. But do you think it may be mm-hmm. more instead of a perfect mm-hmm. process for a future individual like you and me to have something to well, he did this, therefore, you know, and we should celebrate his death? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to that, Frank, because it's. Um, we're the ones that need the reminder, not the Lord. Yeah, yeah. But, but God does act in ways in our world that are, um, you know, we're embodied creatures. You know, and we need, we need physical reminders and, and things to uh, recognize sometimes what God is doing. So, I mean, God gives us signs. Um, he works signs and miracles through Jesus, through prophets, um, in order to get our attention to point at something greater. And so, yes, in a sense, I mean, is it the blood of these lambs that had, su- had like, was there an innate power in the blood of these lambs that were, you know, physically um, without blemish that was so powerful? I think it was pointing and hinting at, the author of Hebrews says, what happened in the Old Testament with events like this, the sacrificial system, that is a shadow of the reality. Now, it happened in real reality to the people that were there, but he's saying that's pointing to something greater. Um, and so, in a sense, this, this was, like you said, helping to prepare them so that they would do this annual reminder meal that, and truly, um, the, the sacrificial system, it was just a bloody affair. And, 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 it, and that's not unique to the Hebrew people, um, to, to Jewish religion. That, that, that's common in very many types of religions throughout the ancient Near East. Um, in fact, the, um, the sacrifice of, of the firstborn or of um, young virgins was very common in other, par- other empires in the ancient Near East. So uh, there, there's this innate sense um, that people have that it, it takes something of the utmost price to pay for us to be made right with God or right with the deity. Um, there's, there's even a universal acknowledgement that something's wrong 
And so we need to do something to fix it. Now, whether that was to appease a rain god or, a, or the sun god or, you know, usually these were gods that had, that acted, that they attributed natural forces to or things like the god of the sea or the god of storms or something like that. Like, for, for safe travel, you know, um, do a sacrifice before you get on your, um, go, up, go on your journey, you know, so that somehow this deity will protect you. Um, so th- this was a very common thing in the ancient Near East. Um, but in that sense, I think you're right. It's, it wasn't the, necessarily the, the Lord who needs that reminder, but it is the people to know in our obedience to what the Lord has told us, his word became true, and he was faithful because of this. He did what he said he did. Exactly, yes. It makes me think this is the only thing that sets you apart from, not that Israel wasn't a special nation, but the blood of the lamb is the thing that sets you apart, that makes you different from the Egyptians. It's clearly, it's not Mm -hmm. because of your faithfulness, it's not because of your... That's a great point, Beth. Yeah, yeah, it's something outside of yourself. It's not your moral superiority. Um, it's it's this reminder that it, it, it is bloodshed and it is the Lord doing this, not you. Absolutely. Um, and so and so, what we have is Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. There was not a house where someone was not dead. And so then he summons Moses and Aaron by night and says, "Up, go for my people. I mean, get." out of here, you know, this is, this is it. Um, both you and the people of Israel go serve this Lord, as you've said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you've said, and be gone. Um, and bless me also. Um, but he recognizes at least, there's a glimmer there of him recognizing the power of the God of Israel. And he submits and surrenders. This, so much has become out of his control with this Passover event. And so he sends them off. And um, and he's um, obviously... La- later, you see, he, he regrets sending them because he goes, well, let's go after him um, and sends an army. But for right now, that's where he's at. Um, and... Um, Oh, I forgot to mention this earlier, but um, in chapter 13, verse 14, um, Moses says, And when the time comes and your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both, both the firstborn man and firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that are first open to the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a mark on your hand and frontlets before your eyes. By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Um, that's, that's there a little bit too, Frank, in reference to your question. Continue to do this to remind them. This is why we perform a sacrifice every year at Yom Kippur mm-hmm. to remember this Passover event and also to know that God's deliverance comes to this community, and so it needs to be part of our communal memory, our cultural understanding, our longings for, um, for God to continue to provide for us. And, and, and it's a mark, I like that, it's interesting that it's a physical mark, uh, he says, on your hands or frontlets between your eyes. And later on, Jesus would talk 
to the religious folks about this, kind of like a, a, they became phylacteries, and it would be like these things that they would hang down over their forehead or whatever, or they would tie them on their wrist. It's like a physical reminder of like God's law. They would take aspects of God's law and put that on there. It's There you go, that's right. Yeah. It's sort of like that. And then you have, of course, they can be thin, or you can have them very broad. And of course, Jesus refers to those who like to be black and broad, and then we can see that they're wearing the word on their on their bodies and keeping with them. I wish I knew that's good. Yeah, th- thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, that's uh, it, so. I mean, this this became a um, later on. It became a much more um, elaborate practice in, among Jews. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this this is just kind of, and they would point back to this is where it comes from. You know, and we're doing this out of this ritual is to remember these things. And like so many uh, things that start off with a good intent, you know, the human heart often takes them and attaches and things to them that maybe that wasn't what was intended, and it becomes becomes a show or hypocrisy and all these types of things. It becomes an outward form. Um, what does Paul say? You know, they, um, it denies the power. You know, they have the outward form of godliness, but they deny its power. That they're not accessing the the reality of it's about a relationship with the spirit of God. It is not about um, your outward behavior and, and activities. And so, like anything, it can be corrupted that way. Um, and so, so God leads them out. This is the Exodus. <laughs> this is why we call this the Book of Exodus. Um, it is. Um, God leads the Israelites, but he takes them on a little bit of a detour. Instead of going along the, the north, kind of along the Mediterranean Sea, that was the caravan trade routes, he takes them down south, and so that's where what we think is the Red Sea. Um, it's in, um, in Greek and Latin, it's Red Sea. In Hebrew, it's the, reed, the, the Sea of Reeds. And... And you know, God's one. He sees their weakness. He knows, you know, they might come upon armies on this northern trail. I'm going to protect them. I know their weakness, and, and He brings them down to the Sea of Reeds, uh, which also I have read could be called the end of sea, kind of like the sea at the end of the world. Uh, it's it's almost like a um, it's almost like a literary tool to show this is almost as though they'd come to the brink of the world. And so, you know, you've got Israel going towards the sea. You've got Pharaoh and his armies of chariots come out and come blazing across the desert after them. And they are between a rock and a hard place. There really is this sense of they're coming to the... This is their, the gateway to the rest of the world. And they're trapped. They actually, you know, they're trapped between this sea of reeds and the army that's bearing down on them. Um, and so that, that brings us to chapter 14, which is sort of this cosmic battle, <laughs> in a sense, that, that happens here, where um, God's leading his people by a pillar of smoke and fire. 
Um, these are symbols for God's immediate presence among his people, a reminder that he is with them. Um, and it would have referenced to, to people who knew the history of, of Abraham. Um, God appeared to Abraham once in a smoking pot cauldron. <laughs> and this was, I mean, this was a, a really interesting um, event where God makes a covenant with Abraham. He tells Abraham to kill a few animals and set their carcasses, divide them in half on the left and the right. And an ancient ceremony that uh, people would do when they made a covenant was kind of like they would sacrifice a few animals and then they would walk through holding hands through these two carcasses as though, hey, if I don't keep up my end of the bargain, may what we just did to these animals, you can do it to me. So, so that's, talk about like signing a contract. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that is a serious contract. Uh, and, and Abraham watches as this smoking pot goes between the carcasses. And is God saying, if I'm not faithful to my promise to you, Abraham, may this happen to me. He puts himself on the line. Uh, so, so, this is, so that, that idea of like the fire of a cauldron and the, the smoke coming out of the pot, very much like this image of... The, the fire, uh, the pillar of fire and the cloud of um, um, smoke um, with the, uh, providing the immediate presence of God. And when they get to Mount Sinai, actually, we'll look at that in a couple weeks, um, you have fire and thunder and smoke and everything on this Mount Sinai and the people are deathly afraid. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're, they're shaking under as Moses goes up to get the law from God um, off of the mount. I mean, I thought, yeah, yeah, I mean, certainly, I mean, he, he is all-knowing, and he's omniscient, we say, he is, uh, so, in other words, it didn't come to a surprise to him, I don't think, um, God's not like us is one of the difficulties, so, I mean, he's not bound like time like we are. So when we think about, do we know the future, it's, I mean, it hasn't happened yet. But God is outside of time. He's not bound by the constraints that we have as embodied beings. And so, um, it probably, I wouldn't necessarily say it's just like, oh yeah, I know, you know, I know that I'm going to push my phone off the table so I can catch it. I mean, I'm making that happen, I guess. But... When it comes to God, when it comes to God's plan of redemption, um, I, I think we have to say it was in His mind all along. Like, even even at creation. And I'm, this is not germane, I'm sure, but mm-hmm. um, is, is there a difference between knowing what's going to happen and, and planning what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, and there there is a difference. Well, I think, yeah, I think an important distinction would be that um, that there's not. Necessary to go together, so that God can create a creature. He's free to do things. 
But don't you think he knows from the beginning of time that that's going to happen? Well, yes, I, I think that God knows. God knows this His creation absolutely. Right. He knows. Yeah. Psalm 139, verse 16. Mm-hmm. Says, "These mm-hmm. books were written all the days of my life, as yet existed." Right. Mm-hmm. Very comforting phrase. Yes. Some people it's very disturbing to others. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, in in Hebrews, it's it's appointed for man to die once, and after that to face judgment. I mean, there's very much a that theme of, I mean, yeah, God's not surprised by events that happen. He's not taken off guard. Right. Right? Now, it doesn't mean that, um, you know, so yeah, there are differing camps within the Christian church as regards how this plays out specifically. But, um, but no, I mean, I think that's a great question, but it's, it's clear that this, this isn't a surprise to God how this goes. It really is. Like, the way that I know my son, if we're going to walk, I mean, this might not be helpful at all, but this is just the thing that comes to mind. Um, when we go to Railroad Park and there are kids out there playing football, I have no idea really, this isn't the same with God, but um, I don't know exactly what he's going to do, but I'm pretty sure he's about to go where that football is. Now, that is different with God. You know, I'm not all-knowing, but... There's a, there's a, all that just to say there is this really relational knowledge that I can move on. You mentioned earlier the verse that, that God says is that um, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And there's so much foreshadowing in the Old Testament mm-hmm. that clearly states, kind of knew every step of the way, at least to my, my mind. That, but that verse you mentioned earlier points to knowledge. Yeah. I guess uh, the reason I, I said the answer is I'm, I'm trying to, so when you ask that question about God's knowledge of the event, it seems to me it's less about the knowledge of the event. Is this God's, is this, is this God's action in some, in, in some way that takes it away from being the action of the party? Well, I mean, that's part of the question. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the question I'm not sure we fully addressed. Well, you probably don't know, but for a number of years, my wife and I were the host of the grief recovery group. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And we, we started this because our son was killed in that, we went this morning, he was killed in an accident, started over 20 years ago. Hmm. And, um, so wow. I, have, I found that particular verse I just quoted from Psalm that God knew about in advance yeah. to be of comfort. Right. And some of the people that were recovery group did too. Others did not. Yeah. It felt like it was, you know, why would God let them out? You know, that's mm-hmm. right. And um, that's reason I asked the question. Yeah. <coughs> and and if, you, if you believe that verse, then he knew what, it's, it's comforting in a sense to know if something like a tragedy strikes, that he knew what, in advance what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, this is part of God's plan. So everything I'm, I'm, I'm God. And therefore, and isn't it that much more beautiful when we see Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane? He knows what's happening. He knows for the reason he was sent was to die for the sins of the world, to experience the full wrath of God against all that's wicked and wrong and sinful and unjust. And he's the Son of God and he knows he will rise from the dead. And yet still he is praying to the point of his sweat turning to blood, like blood, 
drops, dripping to the ground, and he's saying, Father, if it's your will, um, will you do, would you take this cup from me? He's recognizing the unbearable nature of it, um, how we experience things humanly. Like he knows the plan, he knows what's supposed to happen, and yet... You can let yourself start asking questions like about predestination. Mm-hmm. This kind of thing happens. And, and kind of the way I view it, just for my own purposes, is that, you know, he knows what sin puts away all on He knows exactly what I'm going to do tomorrow and the next day and the day after. Yeah. And he knows whether or not I'm going to ask for forgiveness and, and whether or not, he, you know, he, I, mean, I, I think it's all... He does. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. This this would be a great discussion to carry on. I th- I think um, the well just to ra- just to wrap it up because the be- the bells are ringing. So to wrap it up, I mean, but Yahweh is victorious over his enemies. He knew he would be so. You know that wasn't a surprise to them. He he brought his people out from Egypt. He parts the Red Sea. They walk through on dry land, and then as Pharaoh's army's charging in, the, the waters come back over them. Israel is stunned on the seashore and going, praise God. And that's why Miriam and the women are singing. Sing to the Lord, uh, for he's triumphed gloriously. So we do have a God who triumphs. And he triumphs over everything that would seek to destroy us ultimately, but temporally we will still face all number and manner of challenges and difficulties, like what you mentioned, Frank. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, 